0: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at tiaa.org/promises off. LinkedIn News.
1: From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday. And before we get started today, I've got a request. A few times each year, I interview listeners to find out more about what you like about the show. It takes about 20 minutes. So if you're up for sharing some feedback, I hope you'll email me at linkedin.com and let's chat. And now, how do you think and talk about money? Every once in a while in this show, we devote an episode to capital. Because for a lot of people, most people even, money's a big factor in the choices we make about work. Now, there's a lot of personal finance advice out there. There are plenty of people like Susie Orman who will encourage you to save for retirement early or get out of debt. These things are all good things to do, but that is not what today's show is about. There's a view emerging that most of the choices we make about our financial lives are shaped by our thoughts and our beliefs. We think, oh, I'll never have enough money. Or maybe I'm just a person who's bad with money. Over the summer, I read about the work of Asia Evans in the New York Times. She's a financial therapist in New York City. She helps her clients explore these kinds of beliefs and move beyond them. Then in September, I received a copy of Farnoosh Tarabi's new book. Farnoosh is a personal finance expert, but the new book is about belief and emotion. It's called, A Healthy State of Panic. So I invited both Farnoosh and Asia to join me for this week's conversation. Asia's gonna tell us a bit about the growing field of financial therapy, why people seek it, and where we can all benefit. Farnoosh will share how her own beliefs about money were shaped, and what happened when they became so limiting that she, herself, as a personal finance guru, was getting stuck. This episode will become another conversation about mindsets, and Farnoosh and Asia invite us all to step into a growth mindset about our financial lives. Here we go. You'll hear from Asia first.
0: I think for a long time, personal finance has looked at it as it's just about the numbers, and it has nothing to do with emotions. And I cannot help but laugh because it's so comical to me that we as human beings could think that we could remove emotion from anything that we do Right? ever. I, I think it's laughable that the past um, advice had said to just ignore your emotions, put them somewhere else. And let's just focus on the math Right? because it just doesn't work that way. And that to me does not create long-term behavior change. And that's what I'm after. I want people to to feel good about themselves and their choices. And even when they made a choice that wasn't the best, to look back and give themselves grace and say, oh, well, that wasn't the best and that's okay. I worked with what I had at the time.
1: Yeah, well put. You know, so Farnoosh, I wanna invite you into the conversation here. To begin, you've been on the show before when we had an episode around personal finance. And I think of you as a personal finance expert. So I have to say I was surprised that it wasn't until halfway through your book that we got to the first chapter on money, and yet your book purports to be about finance. How
2: is that? Well, when we talk about money, we're talking about life. And I have been working in personal finance, helping people with their money for over 20 years. And the underpinning emotion of so much of what we talk about when people are coming to me with complexities around, what should I do with my money? The underpinning is fear. and. I wanted to write a book that, yes, recognizes my work as a financial expert, but also shows how money is connected to so many aspects of our lives and is emotional, as Asia talks about. So in the book, we cover nine different fears. One is the fear of money, and it is central to the book. And we talk about the fear of money. We're also talking about rejection, which is its own chapter, and failure, which is its own chapter, and FOMO, which is its own chapter. And so it felt disingenuous to not talk about all these other different emotions that are so connected to the fear of money. And I'm ready to have bigger conversations too. Like, I don't want to just talk about how to (laughs) roll over your 401k. (laughs) I think my audience is ready for a deeper dive. And I think we are also at a inflection point in our culture where we recognize that it's not all about being happy all of the time. Like that's great, but I'm also scared. I'm also angry sometimes, I'm also sad sometimes. And our culture has a tendency to want us to ignore these quote unquote bad emotions, but that's not realistic. And I know that when you ignore emotions, they tend to only compound. So this book is my offering to talk about money at the intersection of our emotions, but particularly fear because that is, it tends to be the overarching emotion in my work.
1: You know, fear is an emotion that I associate with scarcity. And so I was really interested, Farnoosh, in the way in which you took fear and suggested that fear, if you understand it well, can actually be your tool. That leaning into that fear, exploring it and pushing it can lead to great outcomes, right?
2: Yes. I mean, fear is a survival mechanism. It is an abundant resource that is flowing through all of our veins. We would not be here recording if it hadn't been for fear. So thank you, fear. I'm not saying let fear blindly guide you through life. I think that there is an unhealthy way to interact with fear, which is what we tend to do most of the time because we've been conditioned to believe that it is the arch nemesis in our lives. But my offering is what if we just even for a minute, turned to look at fear in the face, our fears, which are very personal to us. Ask it questions because I, like you, am also a journalist and I have a lot of curiosity. And I think that is true for many people. Ask it questions, including things like, how did this fear actually arrive in my life? Which encourages you to trace its roots, which along that journey, you'll learn about your culture, your community, the people that influence you. I think that when we look at fear, it's an opportunity to become closer to our values, who we are, what we're about, and ultimately what we want to protect. That is what fear is nudging us towards. In these high stakes moments where we're in crossroads in life, that's when I think it's important
1: to listen to fear. You mentioned these high stake moments. Asia, is that when most clients find you in their lives?
0: (laughs) Yes. I mean... In true therapist fashion, we would always say that we would love it if people found us before they were in the more high stakes moment or a crisis or, you know, an influx in something kind of stressing them. But a lot of times that's when people are like, oh, I really do need to reach out now. I cannot wait. This is making me so uncomfortable. Now's the time, not a second later. So
1: I'm curious, what is the thing that brings most people to you for help? Is it of student loans or fighting one with one's spouse, or
0: what is it? I mean, I think it's hard to say one thing because it is <laughs> sometimes both of those things that you just mentioned. A lot of times people have already started making the connection that they've been doing something over and over again, and they are not shifting to where they want to be. Usually it may not be around so specific as something like student loan debt, but it might be... I keep overspending and I'm not paying down my debt and I don't like that. I'm not living the life I want to be living because of that. Or I do get a lot of couples and usually with the couples, it's our communication is totally broken down and we cannot see eye to eye for whatever reason. And then I would say there's a different aspect um, that people come to me. About and that is about how it feels to be making more money than they have before. Mm -hmm. How it feels to potentially be making more money than their community, than their Mm -hmm. peers, and how do they navigate sharing in some of that wealth, but then also making sure that they're good stewards of their wealth too for the future and their potential future generation.
1: Um, Yeah, that came up actually in your book, Farnoosh, right?
0: It did. It did for me. It did for
2: uh, people I profiled. Um, For me, in particular. I was of the belief that if I tried to make more money, it would come at a too high a cost. The trade-offs were just too severe. I imagined a divorce. I imagined um, spending less time with my children. And I imagined that my culture of parents and Iranians and looking at me and saying, ah, when is it ever gonna be enough for her? Mm. Because we don't allow women to want for money in our culture. God forbid a woman says, I want to be rich. Hmm, it's not received quite as the same way (laughs) as when a man says it. A man doesn't even have to say it. It's assumed that he wants to go after the money. And so for me, I've already written a book about female financial independence. And yet I'm here still grappling with the potential pursuit of stepping up my financial game and playing bigger. And what I recognized was that this fear was rooted in these... Very primitive (laughs) stereotypes and expectations. And also, I was looking out into the world and seeing not much of this reflected, you know, or praised amongst other women. And if anything, we demonized women who were sort of rich, like real housewives rich, you know, like, oh, she can't keep her family together. Oh, it's going to lead to a divorce. And so I have an intelligent side of my brain, but my very sort of irrational side was kicking into high gear and going, oh, no, this is not for you. Don't risk it. Yeah. But when I explored that history of where that fear came from, I recognized that this is not my fear. This is something that latched on to me. And as a woman now who has ambition, who wants the power to connect and heal, and money can be a tool to do that for me, that I it's my birthright to go out there and make as much money as I want. And there is no guilt in that and there's no shame in that. But you know what? That wasn't an easy landing. I had to go through the motions and it started with recognizing the fear and investigating yeah. it.
1: Yeah. Asia, how much of our wealth has to do with what we expect of our wealth?
0: It's almost kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. If you will, like if you think to yourself, this is the only way to get to this level of wealth then you will back that up in how you act to get to that level of wealth. And I think that's when some of the deeper mindset work comes in and what you were talking about, Farnoosh, to start really questioning, where did those beliefs come from? When did I start applying this? And does this actually apply to my life and the reality? And I think one really important way that we look at it is exactly what Furnish was talking about, that you have to work really, really hard to make a lot of money. And there are some people out there who are not working (laughs) really, really hard and are making a ton of money. But sometimes you need to know it's possible and you need to sometimes go against what the rules of your life have told you is possible. And that is very hard and very, very scary. And that's why sometimes people don't. They're like, oh, no, I worked really hard, so it's okay that I got this to this point of wealth. I worked really hard for it. So, it really is about understanding your money narratives and your money story and the story of your history and those beliefs that you've been told and asking yourself, do they still apply to my life right now?
1: This narrative, it's a very American narrative that you work and you are rewarded with wealth. I mean, I'm just going to say it and I run a career show, I think it's a sham. And it gets people into trouble on one side of the spectrum. But it also gets them into the trouble on the other side of the spectrum. When you are a person who works so, 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 so hard and you're not being rewarded with wealth, then I think that you can be clouded with a shame that doesn't belong to you. So how do you speak to people who are working like crazy, barely skating by?
0: Similar to mental health, talking about your money is so taboo and scary. And it brings up this illicit response of, oh, I either don't have enough money to do that or I have money so I should know how to manage it so I don't need anybody to help me. I don't need to talk about it. And if this person was sitting in front of me, I would say, listen, that's okay. I understand where you're coming from and if right now the funds aren't there, that's totally fine. But how is it impacting the rest of your life? Because it sounds stressful, And I'm not here to really dive into the numbers with you. I will if you want to, but we don't need to. I'm here to talk about the impact and why you feel like you have to be working that hard all the time. Do you need to? Yeah. You might need to. What are your options? Because I think we forget what happens when we are chronically stressed Mm -hmm. and how hard that is not only for our bodies, but our relationships, our mental health and how we show up in the world. And I think we have centered work way too much and we need to start like branching out to a more holistic vision of of the human.
1: Well, and I would also imagine that um, in your work, you also see the ways in which our sense of wealth is tied to where we come from, to class and culture and race and all the rest. Um, how how does that sort of play out with your clients? Is there work to be done that can really move people forward?
0: Uh, yes. So I pause just because there's a lot of work we need to do systematically. Yeah. But there's also work that needs to happen individually, and I think I'm going to go back to the example of your self that you used we must go back and explore our histories and where we came from. And I get a lot of resistance from people when I'm like, yes, we have to talk about your parents. (laughs) Yes, we have to talk about your upbringing. Because people sometimes don't want to. They don't want to go back to those scary moments, to the fear, to the sadness, to negative emotions. They don't want to. But It is necessary to me and the way that I work to understand where you came from, where the roots of these patterns came from, and then how are you taking them through your life and then how are they showing up today? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that does involve the way your family looked at money. That does involve what fear was instilled in you. That does involve how you look at what is possible for you. Yeah. Farnish, I feel like I know your parents after reading
1: this book. I mean, our parents might have known each other. Yeah, that's actually true because we grew up at different times in the same town for a a bit of time, which I discovered because I read your book. And um, I was just wondering what it was like for you both internally and then on the pages of this book to explore that information about your parents and their money stories.
2: Uh, Terrifying, (laughs) (laughs) which I guess means it was a worthwhile experience. My parents just read the book and it's always a little spooky when you're writing about your family as you have, right? And your remembrance of how events occurred and played out may be different from their remember their memory. And so I was a little, ap- I was a little like scared about that. Like my parents would be like, that's how you fell. Cause I think my mom usually takes the position of, well, everything worked out, you know? <laughs> so whatever gripes you have, like whatever it's water under the bridge, you know? And if it's like, but no, that was my life and yeah. it still shows up for me. <laughs> and so, uh, they have selective memory. I don't. And they, yeah, they read the book and my mother read it on a flight, which I think is always a, a dangerous thing because flights tend to bring out the, the tears. I don't know what it is. Is it like air circulation or what? It might be the oxygen. I don't know, but like, don't watch Sleepless in Seattle on an airplane. Like it's going to make you be that sobbing.
1: I would rather my mother be weepy than angry though.
2: Yes, she was weepy and that's good. (laughs) So we're happy about that. And she, (laughs) she landed and she was like, I learned so much about myself in your book. Because you had this ability to observe me and connect some dots for me. As she was in the throes of life, I was sort of that constant observer and recognizing how she was able to find strength in her fears and strength in her fears, specifically of loneliness and rejection. As my mother was new to this country. When um, she had me, she was just 19 years old. She was new to motherhood and marriage, and she was basically a teenager. And that was really, really hard for her. And it was at the time for me, a difficult relationship. I think mother daughter, as she was trying to sort of find her way. And I was trying to like lean on her for guidance. And she probably, you know, only had so much to give. And yet now as I write in the book, um, I come to the material with like my 43 year old brain, and now also a, a mother myself and someone who, Recognizes the privileges that I had that she didn't, and how that affected her. And I hoped to bring to the book a lot of empathy from my parents, which I don't always show to them. And as I said to my writing coach Suzanne, I said, "Suzanne, I just want to make sure I'm not throwing my mother under the bus." Uh, <laughs> she said, "No, no, you're not. I, your mom's kind of the hero, yeah. and and um, and my dad too. You know, my dad was the one who taught me about risk. He's a physicist, so everything is about numbers for him. He's like." He loves to find the nuance in numbers. (laughs) His numerology is like all he thinks about. It's so, so funny. But the reason I say that is because from him, I learned the importance of truly calculating for risk. And he was the one who told me, Don't take out student loans for college. Go to the state school where we can cash flow this. And I promise you, you'll thank me later. Can you imagine telling a 19-year-old, you know, don't go to all these prestigious schools that you got into. Go to Penn State because it's cheaper and you'll thank me later. Like I was in denial and I was not happy about that for the longest time. But of course, it worked out, as they say.
1: We're going to take a quick break here. We'll be right back with more from Asia Evans and Farnoosh Tarabi. Stick around.
0: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, T.I.A.A. makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm D.C. Marshall.
1: Hi, I'm Mita Malik.
0: We are the co-host of the Brown Table Talk podcast, where we discuss how to help women of color thrive in their workplaces,
1: And we invite allies to join us to help women of color win at work. We have a seat waiting for you. Subscribe to Brown Table Talk wherever you enjoy podcasts. And we're back. Today, we're digging deep into how our emotions and our narratives, our money stories, affect our financial health and outlook. During our conversation, I wondered aloud what happens when we don't want to address these stories. Once again, here's Asia Evans, followed by Farnish Tarabi.
0: You continue to live them yourself, but then you also pass them along. So I think when when we start having conversations about parent to kid um, money stories and what that looks like, the thing about it is is that children are always watching. They're so observant and they feel it too. So it's not just, "Hey, I said to do this and this is how you should do it." It's also, "I see what you are doing. I see the emotion that happens when you're doing whatever's like you're doing. I I sense the the tone, the body language, all of this is messaging around money." Yeah. So if you don't as an adult, um whether you are already a parent or thinking about being a parent or just unsure, everybody, I think, needs to come to grips with what their money story is, what their narratives are that they are holding on to, and decide, is that something you are okay passing down? To me, so I am also a parent. I have two toddlers, which is really something. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) And I find it insane that I'm taking on some of the things that I'm doing (laughs) when – I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old, but again, we're holistic yeah. people. <laughs> I have other needs too. So I, I bring all this up because when you – Start to decide, Hey, am I okay passing these things on to my children? You then have to decide how do you want to act in front of them? And what do you want to say? And what are the messages that you are okay with them picking up? And that is very complex because it forces you to do your own work, whether you're ready to or not, because you are trying to be a more aware parent. And I think the more financial therapy, and just mental health in general, and the importance of what we pass down generationally is becoming part of the conversation, that awareness means that we have to act accordingly and do some things different, which means that we have to go digging in our own past and closets and such. Like we do.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, For somebody who's not in an acute moment of their financial life, but simply really does want to make sure that they are imbuing their children with strong messages around how we should think about wealth generation, what advice might both of you have?
2: Yeah, I talk about legacy in a healthy state of panic and how through our fears, we can lay a beautiful groundwork for the next generation. I mean, I inherited some not so great fears from my parents, but also good ones, specifically the fear of financial financial loss. And, you know, my parents came to America, again, immigrants, not a whole lot, like a lot of people starting here for the first time, but they did it. You know, my father and mother, they worked, they worked hard, but they also had a lot of luck. I've written about the luck that played a huge role in our lives. Just, just like even being able to be born in America, me was absolute a fortune. Yeah, And I want to make sure that when, as I'm telling my children about working hard and saving and all the good principles around financial management and, and model that for them. I also want them to be very clear that the world is uncertain. The world is not patient. The world is not always a safe place. Yeah, And I want them to pair that lens with also this lens of like, I am entitled to make as much money as I want, but I also need to recognize that being entitled simply entitled is a recipe for disaster. Feeling that entitlement is not what's going to get me to the finish line. I should feel like I deserve it, but I shouldn't expect it at all costs, at any cost, right? Some things won't work out and it won't be your fault, but it is going to be your responsibility. Unfortunately, that's the reality to create a new blueprint for yourself Mm -hmm. that when uncertainty arrives and it almost always does, you need to have a plan B and a plan C that you are just as excited about as plan A. And my parents gave me that. And I think that's what's helped me navigate so many of my failures, so much of the uncertainty that I have encountered. If you asked me like 20 years ago, what I envision is for my life, it would be very different than what I'm living today, but I'm a very fulfilled woman. And so for my children, I think that is a healthy message that I want to pass down to them that ties to your finances, that ties to your mental health, it ties to your resilience. Yeah, That's my offer.
1: Yeah,
2: Asia, I might think about, Putting the same question
0: to you. So I think first, beautifully said, Barnoosh. <laughs> and I say that because what parents have to do is be intentional. Yeah. And that answer to me is very clearly intentional. And that's the point of what we're trying to do. You have to decide what do you want to offer up to your kids. And also know that it is an offer. Mm-hmm. They may completely decide to reject and and do the opposite. And that's okay. That's up to them. But figuring out how you want to offer it and then continuously offering it throughout their lives. like That's what's important. This is a clear, consistent message throughout. And sometimes you might get it wrong and that's okay, but you can still be consistent and go back. Um, I don't know if the audience knows, but our Our money beliefs tend to be solidified around seven to nine. So that's very, very young. Uh And right now I'm in the position where I'm like, oh gosh, I have three (laughs) years for my oldest. Like what are the beliefs? So I talk about money very, very frequently because I think in, especially in Black communities, it is so taboo. I mean, it's taboo in most communities, let's be clear. But specifically in Black communities, it's the idea of talking about mental health, um, our feelings, vulnerability, and money. All of that is you keep that in-house. You do not let that go a foot out this door. Like that does not, that doesn't happen. And I want to interrupt that narrative. I want my children to feel comfortable telling somebody that they hurt their feelings. And that's okay to be vulnerable and share that with people. So I'm really trying to be intentional of Speak how you feel. Um, Money is not something that we should be afraid to talk about and to bring it up. And as they get older, hopefully just making sure that they understand the social constructs of what is secret and what's private and, and knowing the difference, especially when it comes to their feelings and their money.
1: I love that differential, separating what is secret from what is private. I think shame and fear keep us from talking enough about money. And sure, maybe those should be private conversations, but perhaps keeping them secret works against us. Before we go, I wanted to speak directly to financial stress. A lot of us face it for all kinds of reasons at inopportune moments. This fall, for example, and in fact, as this episode airs, student loans are coming due again for the first time since the onset of the pandemic. This is creating stress for a number of listeners, and that's just one thing. You might be coping with a layoff or an unexpected health crisis. So I asked Asia and Farnoosh what to do when you feel like panicking. Here's Asia, and then Farnoosh.
0: If you find yourself in a panic, I I want you to just stop everything that you're doing, try to find a quiet place, and just breathe. If you were upset and you need to cry, now's the time, cry cry, be upset, be angry, all of the emotions, that's okay. You have to kind of feel them. And then after that, I need you to breathe, like truly breathe, take deep intentional breaths and then don't do anything with your money. Because I think a lot of people are in a panic and they want to do all of the things with their dollars and you just have to take a beat. You cannot. Do anything with your finances when you are physically and emotionally activated. All that happens then is you are putting yourself, you're like kicking the can down the road. Mm -hmm. That is just to make you feel better. And like I said, I want long-term solutions for you. So when you are in panic, don't touch your money. Breathe, sit down, talk about it, figure out what you need personally to just kind of come back to homeostasis and balance, if you will. And then let's have a conversation about what's possible, what's not, preferably not in the same day. (laughs) Uh,
2: That was wonderful. Um, Farnoosh. I'm glad Asia went first because that is, I think, no doubt the first step. Then I would say when you are in a better place of being able to actually take action, I would take inventory of all of your resources And money is just one of those resources, but we also forget sometimes the people in our lives, the communities we are in. Even your employer might have some resources. There might be some student loan relief at your employer. Did you know that? You should ask. There might even just be access to financial therapy or financial advisory through your employer. Uh, More employers are offering these out-of-the-box benefits uh, to stay competitive, so I would take inventory, literally make a list, even if it's just like my neighbor, right, who is a therapist or my neighbor who um, just paid off their student loans. I mean, I think that we often forget just how rich we are through the resources that we have. And as I write in A Healthy State of Panic, when you are in this super panic mode, what that can sometimes yield when you reflect on that fear and you take inventory of your resources is a sense of gratitude. And from there you feel way more empowered and way more encouraged to go and do the things that you need to do or want to do to solve for your financial problems, your financial issues. Um, And and to remember that you don't have to go through this alone. You're not alone. This is a nationwide crisis There are resources online. There are resources offline. You have to be the biggest advocate for your financial well-being, but it doesn't mean you have to go it alone. That was Asia Evans and
1: Farnoosh Tarabi. Asia is a financial therapist, and we've linked to her work in the show notes. Farnoosh is a personal finance expert and a best-selling author. Her newest book, A Healthy State of Panic, is out now. There were so many takeaways from this episode, folks. I'm going to keep so many things in mind. Number one, money is an emotional issue, and a lot of those emotions extend from fear. Understanding how our emotions are impacting our financial decisions can help us make better ones. Number two, our understanding of money tends to solidify in childhood, age seven to nine. That tells me a couple of things. For one, whatever we tell ourselves about our money, it's probably a story we've been telling for a long time. It might be worth exploring. Also, if we wanna spare our kids some of our fear and feelings when it comes to finance, we have to be willing to help shape their understanding and we have to do it early. And three, if we find ourselves in a money panic, our first job is to get still, breathe intentionally, and feel our feelings. Only then can we take stock of our resources and figure out how to address the thing that's stressing us out. Financial therapy is on the newer side and the Hello Monday team is wondering what you think about it all. So let's talk about it this week on Office Hours. I'll go live on the LinkedIn news page this Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern, along with our producer, Sarah Storm. If you're not sure where to find us, well, send us a line at LinkedIn.com and we'll drop you a link you can also join the conversation in our Hello Monday group. We hope to see you there. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn News. Sarah Storm produces our show with help from Lolia Briggs. It's engineered and mixed by Asaf Gadron. Our theme music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Michaela Greer helps us make smart decisions. Enrique Montavo is our executive producer. Dave Pond is head of news production. Courtney Koop is head of original programming. Dan Roth is the editor in chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. We'll be back next Monday. Thanks for listening.